This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Will you, uh, will you pray with me uh, before we jump into God's Word this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the life that you've given us. God, in your grace and your goodness and your pleasure, we thank you for the air we breathe. God, we thank you for family and friendships. God, for the common graces that fill our lives. And God, for those of us who are in Christ this morning, we thank you for that particular special unique grace by which our salvation, redemption, and sanctification has come. That favor from you shown into our darkness by the life and the work of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray this morning for those who have not yet believed. God, I ask that you would open their hearts to believe. God, that you would save those who are still lost. God, that you, in your sovereign goodness, would push past our hearts and minds marred by sin. God, drawn to darkness and self-deception and speak truth to us this morning. God, wherever we are this morning, whatever's on our minds and hearts, I pray by the power of your Spirit that we'd be able to lay those things at your feet. God, you are good. You are gracious. And in Christ, we are your treasured possession. So speak to us now, Father, through the authority of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today is week two of however many weeks we spend in the book of Colossians. We're going to go back now. We set it up last week looking at why it was ultimately that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. He hadn't founded the church in Colossae. That had happened through the ministry uh, of a man who had come to faith under Paul's ministry. But the theological syncretism, the, the way that the, the people in the church in Colossae were, were bringing in aspects of false teaching into their faith in Christ and mixing it all up with cultural and religious ideologies that spun around them in their world alarmed Paul. And he was afraid for them. He was concerned for them. And he wrote them to clarify the beauty and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in them and in all Things. So we'll be uh, picking up with, uh, sorry, say with Romans, uh, with Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. Before we get started, I just want to say uh, a word of reminder or maybe announcement if, if you haven't um, heard it already or seen it in e-news or in your program or whatever. But um, if you come on Wednesday night, and if you don't and you can, I really hope you'll begin doing that. We need more of this and one another than you get on Sunday morning. It's not been often throughout church history that the church has met once a week, right? Now, they didn't have big, nice buildings, and they hadn't built institutions for themselves, but they were regularly together, sharing life and sharing meals 
and centering themselves around the Word of God, being empowered by the Spirit of God to go out into their worlds in and through the power of Jesus. So I hope you'll consider being a part of what's happening uh, midweek up here. But if you do come or if you're going to come and you're not already doing something, right? You're not serving with students or children. Um, you're not in an LM Institute class. Um, there is uh, a midweek prayer and Bible study group, a time of just general prayer and Bible study available for any, anybody who's here and wants uh, to be a part of that. So come, have dinner. Um, that's team-led, co-led, which means they're not always both there at the same time, but Vince Pinson and Dan Smith are handling that. So I just encourage you to be here. Um, and if you're not already involved, jump into that group uh, this spring. I think anytime we gather around God's Word, uh, we share our lives with one another, we spend time in prayer, we are blessed, revived, and God is honored, we are sanctified. So I want to remind you of that. Let's look at Colossians uh, chapter 1. I'm simply going to read verses 1 and 2, which is uh, not even Paul's introduction so much as just the, the beginning word to the believers in Colossae this morning. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. This is a, a, a very standard Pauline introduction. It's found in all of his letters. Paul starts all of his letters the same way, and he ends all of his letters the same way. It's a, a sort of ramped up, reoriented take on what was a, a normal Greco-Roman introduction in that world to a letter. And it's at the beginning and not at the end. And some of you know this and some of you don't uh, because they, you know, they wrote on scrolls on that day. So as they would unroll the scroll to read, they could immediately read who it was from. We don't do that for any of you who write letters anymore or even maybe just have to type them. We, uh, we do our sincerelys and so on and so forth at the bottom. Uh, but if you did that in their day, you wouldn't know who this was from, right? And the letter carried the authority of the person writing it. It stood in place for that person. In a sense, it was the same as we find in God's Word today. God's Word stands in place or instead for God Himself to you and to me. It is God's written word, his authoritative word, his truth, his personality for us as human beings and for his world, just as Jesus is the living word. What I want us to do is kind of walk through these two, two verses, and then we're going to return uh, to verse 1 and spend just a little time in verse 1. Paul starts out, and he declares himself to be an apostle. An apostle. Now, apostle could have several different meanings in Paul's day. But when Paul opens in a letter, and usually when he refers to himself as an apostle, he is talking about the position he finds himself in Christ by the will of Christ, that authoritative position to be one called to speak on behalf of God to the people of God and to the wider world. It carries with it this idea of a, a messenger, an envoy, an ambassador, someone officially commissioned to carry the message, the culture, the representation of someone or something else, of another kingdom, of another person. And if you know Paul's story, he was not always a believer in Jesus Christ as 
the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And yet, one day on his way to a city called Damascus to continue persecuting followers of the way, both men and women who had given their lives to Jesus and were speaking out about Jesus and were forming house churches. And Paul, as a devout Jew, saw them as a heretical group. He saw what they were doing as heresy. He saw it as undermining God. And in a sense, Paul, we have to be careful even talking about Paul's conversion because of the weight that that word carries today as as someone who's converting from non-belief to belief. That's not at all what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul didn't convert from Judaism to something else. Paul came to understand through the presence and power and word of the risen Lord that Jesus was in fact Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And there was a reorientation of Paul's thinking about what it meant to be an Israelite in Christ. And then came this great commission to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And we should be grateful for this. I don't know how many of us in here are racially, ethnically Jews, but unless you are, you should be very grateful that God in his sovereign goodness chose to call individuals like Paul specifically for the mission of church planting among Gentiles to travel around the known world at that time announcing the good news that was not about Caesar, but was about Jesus Christ. That now the kingdom of God had come and it was open to all, regardless of race or ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of whether they were slave or free, this good news was for them, for all who would receive it. And he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just represent someone else, like those people that come knocking on your door sometimes to sell you a cleaner that's safe for you to drink, but also will clean anything and everything all the time, including oil, grease, and blood. Now, I'll admit, I fall prey to those. Once I see them lick a little bowl with it in it, and then they clean something of mine, I'm like, I'll take 50 gallons. (laughs) Right? Sharon is often very displeased by the amount of these special cleaners I buy. But they work. They work, right? Paul wasn't just an apostle. He wasn't a messenger or an envoy or an ambassador of anyone or anything. He wasn't a messenger of Jerusalem or the church in Jerusalem. He wasn't a messenger, certainly, of Rome. He wasn't a messenger of the Pharisees. He was a messenger of Jesus Christ. He was called, commissioned, saved, and sent by Jesus Christ himself. And that was central to Paul's thinking. It was central to the authority that he carried over the church. His understanding of who he was and his role before God and in the life of the church. I remember having a professor in preaching say to us one time and then many times following that, that those of us who are called by God to do this task on earth, the task of preaching the gospel, of heralding the gospel, better never confuse that we work for God and with people. Because he said the, the minute that you confuse that and begin to think you work for people, you cannot help but be swept into a desire to please them, to say what you know they want to hear. Never forget that you work for God and with people. And I found that over the last 20 years to be very, very true. 
Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. More than any other single person, you see Timothy named throughout the letters of Paul as the close companion, a fellow worker in the ministry of the gospel. Paul had many co-laborers in the gospel, both men and women who were named, who traveled with him, who spoke on behalf of Christ, who helped plant churches around the Mediterranean world. But Timothy was unique. Timothy and Paul had a close relationship. It's very likely that uh, this book carries not only the theology of Paul, but the theology of Timothy as well. There would have been no reason for Paul to put him in the opening line of the letter unless he participated in the writing of this letter. Yet this letter bears ultimately Paul's name because it is under the apostleship of Paul that Timothy ministers and has his authority and calling in God. But he calls him our brother. You notice that? He doesn't say, hey, from, from myself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and my brother, Timothy. He says, our brother. One of the things that has been um, significantly lost in the life of the church in the West across the last couple of centuries has been the real sense to which you and I constitute a new earthly family. That when you come to faith in Christ, you are not just um, sort of grafted into the people of God universally and historically. You are, for sure. But that only has any true expression as you are grafted into a local congregation of believers. We become brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ which means we affect one another. Our sins affect one another. Our faithfulness affects one another. Our attendance, when the body gathers, for whatever reason the body gathers, affects one another and the health of the organism as a whole. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, Timothy, our brother. He's acknowledging this unique new kinship that can I just say with candor and conviction stands above your earthly ones. Jesus himself declared that to be true. When his mom and siblings were outside, they're like, man, can you go get Jesus to come out? Because he's gone crazy, right? He's making a fool of himself in there, talking nutty. And Jesus said, who, who are my mother? Who's my mother and my brothers? And he began to redefine the family there. And this redefinition of family carries its weight throughout the New Testament. It's not that the earthly family that we've been given doesn't come from God as well, for better or worse. Extended family. It simply means that our allegiance, our allegiance ultimately is to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of why Jesus would say um, at one point in his ministry, he doesn't come to bring peace but a sword, separating husbands and wives, parents from children. He's saying the gospel comes first. The gospel comes first. It's a powerful message that you and I often miss as very individualized and individualistic Westerners. Paul goes on here and he says, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Probably better to translate this simply to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae and in Christ. This word holy here originally 
exactly saints is not just, we tend to, to think about this in, in moral terms, and that is certainly uh, implied. But the specific central meaning of being holy or being a saint is that you and I, by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, and the work of the Son have been set apart to God. Ecclesia, the word for church, means those who've been called out. Originally, it was just used for any assembly in a city. It could be a, a called out group of businessmen. It could be a called out group of Stoics or philosophers that were speaking. That's why you'll often see the phrase, the church of God in, in the New Testament, the called out of God. Make no mistake about it, to, to respond to the gospel and to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to be reunited with God, reconciled with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is to become a saint, is to become a person holy, a person set apart for the person and the character of God himself. And out of that comes the moral implications of how you and I live. If we get those reversed, we're always not only going to be miserable people, we're going to make other people miserable with our distorted sense of uh, self-aggrandized moralism. Because we talked about this last week. We all know people, don't we, who are very moral and ethical, but they're not Christian, right? They know how, by and large, to not lie, cheat, steal, and kill people. Except when absolutely necessary, right? But there's something different about the reason followers of Jesus do it. We do it to the glory of God. We do it that Christ might be seen in our lives as sufficient and supreme. We do it to bring shalom, healing, and wholeness back to a world that's been broken by sin. To God's holy people, saints, and faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae and in Christ. The word here in some of your translations may just say brothers. Adelphoi is the word there. And it very much carries brothers and sisters with it. Adelphois, um, plural combination there, brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you look at faithful, we talked a little bit about this in uh, Gospel Belief, our class this last week, and not necessarily in the class, but in the reading, I believe. Um, what Paul is saying here has a, a, a two-sided reality to it. He's writing to the Colossians as faithful, meaning people who have believed, right? They are believing people. They have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're also faithful to him. They are trusting in him day in and day out. Each morning when you wake up and you face that day, you're saying, Jesus, I know that I will find you to be enough today. Give me the grace and the power to follow you today. It's belief and trust. It's a, a cognitive heart thing and it's a volitional thing. I'll make decisions. I'll go this way or that way. I'll say yes or no based in my active trust in God. It's a great metaphor this week about um, flying, or I think it was about ships, but I'll use it uh, with regard to flying. I may say I believe that an airplane is, is made in such a way and maintained in such a way that when it hits a certain speed, it gains lift 
and if someone competent is in the cockpit, will stay airborne until it is supposed to land. And then it is made in such a way and maintained in such a way and flown in such a way that the pilot may gently glide it to the ground, not simply crash it into the ground, right? But if I say I believe that and yet give counsel to fear that prevents me ever from flying, do I really believe that? No, I don't. True belief drives our behavior, always. John Ortberg in a great little book says, there are three types of belief. There's what we want others to think we believe. There's what we think we believe. And then there is what we believe. And what we believe steers our lives. What we believe drives our actions. Um, I remember hearing a, a retired professor now from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, who was a renowned professor and dean at that school, talk about another faculty member who he wouldn't name, uh, but they had an incredible athletic complex there. Um, and uh, the man telling the story, Dr. Toller, had been uh, active and athletic and physical all his life. He'd been an All-American football player at a Division I school, and God calls into the teaching and preaching ministry. And um, so he, he regularly, up into his 50s, 60s, 70s, um, worked out consistently multiple times a week at the athletic center. And uh, he was talking with one of his peers, and he said, hey, I, I never see you over the athletic center. Did you come over sometime? Work out. Be good for you, Right? Good for you physically, good for you mentally, good for you emotionally. The guy said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. And Dr. Toller said, why? And he said, because I believe God has given each one of us a certain number of heartbeats. And if I exercise, I'll use those up more quickly. <laughs> Dr. Toller, Dr. Toller said he was baffled. He said, you can't believe that. He said, I do believe it, and I'm not going to exercise. He said, you can't. You're a studied person. You're a PhD. You're educated. You're intellectual. You're grounded in Scripture. You can't believe that. He said, well, I do, and I will not exercise. <laughs> Dr. Toller said, sometimes you've got to recognize the entrenched power of ignorance and move on. What we really believe drives our behavior. And then Paul gives them this greeting. To be grace and peace to you from God our Father, Karasumes Kai Arene, Karasumes Kai Arene, grace to you and peace. Again and again and again in Paul's letters. He commends, he wishes upon, he greets fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with Karis, grace, and with Arene, peace. Paul does this deliberately and intentionally. I think sometimes you and I underestimate it. We just lose sight in the busyness of our days, the degree to which we need lives by the mercy of God, filled and defined by grace and peace. And these two things cannot be separated Without the grace of God, the active modal grace of God being poured out into our lives, you and I will not know peace. We're unable to have peace with God. We stand separated from God, enemies of God, men and women making war on God through our own active desires to be our own gods. But the grace of God comes into our life, not as just something we receive 
and believe, but as a mode in which we are redeemed. The life, the righteous life, and the atoning death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ is taken in faith and placed on you by the grace of God. You and I are sanctified. Strongholds are broken down. Addictions over time are shattered in our lives. Relationships are reconciled. The crookedness of our thinking is made straight. This is sanctification that happens over time by the grace of God, resulting in increased understanding and awareness of the peace we now have with God. Do you understand how much of your restlessness, my restlessness comes from doubting that we have peace with God? That God is at peace with us? And peace is so necessary. Without an understanding that God is at peace with us, with us and we are at peace with him. And behind this word peace is Paul's uh, he, Hebrew background in the Old Testament, understanding the shalom of God, the desire and the power and the eventual, eventual will of God to put back together everything that sin has shattered and separated. Without a deep understanding of the fact that we we now are at peace with God. We're unable to be at peace with others. We're unable to extend grace to them, to give unmerited favor to them, favor that's not based on how they behave toward us. Because if, if we're still at enmity with God, if we don't have peace with God, then we're always wrestling and struggling to make ourselves better and more than we are right now. We can't take a back seat. We've got to strive grace and peace to you from God, our Father, Paul says. This is his opening in his letter. And I want to uh, tune in to a couple of things in verse 2 before we go back to verse 1. He addresses, and in the Greek, that these are really nice bookends. In Colossae is at the front, in Christ at the back, and in between is this address to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters. Right, he, he, he talks about in Colossae and in Christ, giving both their geographical location and their theological location. This is true not just for them in their day and their location, but it's true for us in our day and in our location. N.T. Wright says that Paul is making clear here that Christians, don't miss this, that Christians are located with precision, not accidentally or arbitrarily, as members of both the true people of God and of a particular earthly community where we are called to serve and to be Christ's witnesses. For them, they were in Christ in Colossae, Asia, Asia Minor, Asia Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. For us, we are in Christ in the northwest metro Atlanta area of the state of Georgia in the United States as representatives of Christ. And Colossae, for some five centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus, had really been a, a pretty dominant cosmopolitan city. 
It was located on a major trade route about 120 miles west of, um, of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians, of Ephesus. But about, a, a, about 11 miles away was Laodicea, and Laodicea was gaining prominence. Did I say west of Ephesus? It was east of Ephesus. Doesn't matter, nobody cares. But uh, it, it was east of Ephesus. So I'll correct myself while I'm still being recorded, right? About 11 miles away was Laodicea, and Laodicea was gaining prominence. And if you've lived here, how many of you have lived in this general area, right? Say Northwest Metro uh, Atlanta for 20 years or more. Okay, you guys know what it's like to have a city that's kind of the, the prominent happening place to be and shop and live. And then, and then it, another city becomes the prominent place to live and shop and work and be, right? You know what I'm talking about? Same thing has been happening for millennia. Laodicea was growing in prominence. Colossae was fading in prominence, but Colossae had been on this major trade route, right? And so it had been exposed for centuries to very diverse cultural and religious movements, which we talked about last week, bled and were beginning to bleed into the church, specifically in the form of people actually falsely teaching and advocating for these things as being part of the Christian witness within the church. That's what created this theological syncretism where you take uh, one thing and then you, you pull from other places and you start adding to it. And in Christ, this, this powerful phrase, in Christ is the very center of what Paul understands being saved to mean. What Paul understands redemption to be. 33 times we find in Christ in Paul's letters. And if you add Jesus, our Lord, in Christ Jesus, our Lord, 48 times. This phrase permeates Paul's thinking and his theology. It's his way of saying that believers are now, we're now located, right? Or, or uh, in a new place or a new reality. The kingdom of God's son is our new reality in Christ. And this new location or reality carries with it a total reorientation of who you are. This is what Paul's fighting for in the book of Colossians. To bring them back to the true, pure gospel that understands Christ as sufficient and supreme so that their lives might be totally reoriented around that existence. So what's Paul's message, or rather, what's God's message for us this morning? In here, we don't live in Colossae. It's just a mound right now, tell. It hasn't been excavated yet. We know where it is. We've excavated all kinds of cities that Paul founded churches in around it, but they haven't gotten to Colossae yet. We don't live there. What's God's message for us today? I think this morning it lies in verse 1. We'll look back at that in just a second. I want to say, first of all, in, in 2002, Sharon and I went on our first cruise. It was a, uh, a seven-day Royal Caribbean cruise that her parents had graciously gifted us um, we'd been married a few years. I was in seminary full-time, uh, working pretty much full-time. Sharon was working full-time. Um, and that summer, we went on this seven-day Royal Caribbean cruise. Um, I, because I am who I am, don't remember what port city we left from, but I do remember that we went to Key West, which who cares? Um, we went to Grand Cayman Island, which was fantastic. Um, and then we went to Cozumel, which was a bit of a letdown after Grand Cayman. Um, 
But it was an incredible time, a wonderful time. Great time to cruise, right? No COVID. So you didn't care about anything. You just had fun. Um, we sat at a table. At that time, we were by far the youngest people at our table. Those of you who've cruised know what I mean, right? You don't get to select your table unless you're like a party of 20. You're just at a table with people, which to me is an absolute nightmare, right? I mean, I'm as extroverted as they can come sometimes. Uh, but I refill by being alone, not with people. So it was torturous for me to be set with these people um, every evening. But we were, and we were by 20 or 30 years the youngest couple at the table. So we're sitting around uh, this table. Our servers' names were Kate and Lazar. Kate and Lazar, they were Romanian, um, and they took care of us all week long, seven days. Sharon and I came to love the time with Kate and Lazar. We talked with them. We learned about their experience on ship, what it's like to work on a cruise ship. They were one of the, one of the chief highlights of our week. But as the week progressed, we watched with somewhat befuddled amazement, if that's a real phrase, at how the others around our table, much older, more successful, more accomplished than us, never even looked at Kate and Lazar. They're coming, they're refilling things, they're taking place. They're just talking to one another and sometimes to us. And the servants are just coming and doing their thing, right? We watched this all week and it was so strange. It was as if because of uh, Kate and Lazar's jobs, maybe they were insignificant. Not people to, to look in the face and to acknowledge verbally, to maybe ask how their day had been going. Not that they were going to say terrible, you know, asleep in a tuna fish can down in the bowels of the ship. <laughs> but to at least ask. But I think in all of us, there's this idea that some lives and some professions and some jobs are just simply more significant than others. And I think God has a brief word for us as we prepare to close out our time this morning. Look again at what Paul says in verse one. He says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Don't miss those four words. By the will of God. It's five words. <laughs> Don't miss those five words. By the will of God. I want to say a couple of things about this. First, this is Paul's entire theological pers uh, perspective. When you study Pauline theology, Paul understands him becoming a Christian by the will of God. His apostleship and authority are by the will of God. He goes here or there and does this or that by the will of God. Second, he is making clear to the Colossians and to us that they and we are obligated to listen to him throughout this message as opposed to the false teachers and cultural voices in our day. But the key question is, what does Paul's apostolic calling, what does his apostolic authority by the will of God in first century Palestine have to do with you and me this morning? in 21st century, Northwest Metro Atlanta. Let me uh, begin at least getting at that by reading Ephesians 1.1 for us. Go back a couple of pages if you want to in your Bible. Not 1.1, 1.11. Ephesians 1.11. The Apostle Paul says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity 
with the purpose of his will. So what does God work out in conformity to the purpose of his will? Everything or all things. This is why it matters. Not just Paul's life and Paul's ministry, but your life and your ministry. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Some of you are school teachers this morning by the will of God. Others are stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads by the will of God. While others are nurses, businessmen or women, lawyers or plumbers, architects, doctors, missionaries, police officers, salesmen, students, athletes, by the will of God. Sharon and I went to Hardin-Simmons University by the will of God. Both of us set to go somewhere else. We met seemingly randomly to us in another city at another event and realized we both went to Hardin-Simmons by the will of God. We fell in love and married by the will of God this summer We'll have been married 23 years, right? By the will of God. We've got three teenagers and twin toddlers by the will of God. We've got two girls and three boys by the will of God. I'm called to preach and to stand before God accountable for how I herald and live the gospel message by the will of God. Sharon is called with her gifts and her abilities to whatever she's engaged in in different seasons of the life by the will of God. Our kids go to North Cobb Christian School by the will of God. We're here at Lost Mountain Baptist Church in Georgia by the will of God. We live in Oakley Point by the will of God. Our kids have the talents and personalities that they do by the will of God. And so it is with you. So it is with you. Maybe you need just a little reinforcing here. Psalm 139, 16 says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Proverbs 16, 9. Proverbs 16, 9 says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. You look a couple of chapters back to chapter 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Man, that's true for me. My heart is filled with plans, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Maybe you're still unsure. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 10, to the age and the ministry and the theology of the prophets, and you find this throughout the prophets. Jeremiah 10, 23, Lord, Jeremiah says, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. Maybe you say, well, that's the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? What about life in Christ by grace and faith? Acts 17, Paul is speaking to the Athenians and he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives, or rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Whatever you have, you have by the will of God. From one man, he made all the nations 
listen, that they should inhabit the, world, the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. The boundaries of their lands. Acts 18, verses 20 and 21. When they asked him to spend more time with them, that is, they're asking Paul to stay, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. One more that we could go all morning. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Verses 31 and 32. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. Have you ever stopped to think? Have you ever stopped to think, to really dwell on the fact that who you are is by the will of God, that what you do is by the will of God, that where you live is by the will of God, that what you have is by the will of God, that what you accomplish is by the will of God. Obviously, this excludes your sin and mine. Our willingness at sometimes to, to live in disobedience to the teaching of Scripture. If I commit adultery, sexual immorality, I can't say, but that was by the will of God. Because Scripture specifically teaches us that is not by the will of God. If I live in greed, withholding from God, what is God's? I can't say, this is by the will of God. Scripture speaks against that. When you and I understand this, it brings security and significance into our lives. Security because nothing in your life, the things you do or things done to you, can exceed or extend beyond God's grace or capacity to redeem all things for the glory of his name and for your good. And there's a security in that. And knowing that I live and move and breathe by the will of God, what happens in my life has to pass through the hands of God. And there's significance, the truth that God is working everything, Scripture says, out according to the purpose of His will, Ephesians 1, 11, His inner counsel, imparts significance not only to Paul as an apostle, but also to you and your life and ministry as well as mine. I said earlier, I'm preaching in here right now by the will of God. You're here this morning by the will of God. LM kids are being loved on over there by volunteers, servants this morning by the will of God. The worship band is about to lead us in a time of response by the will of God. You and I are breathing right now by the will of God. You are where you are. You're in the season of life that you're in by the will of God. Don't resent it. Don't push against it. Receive it in grace and in gladness. And spend time praying to God. Confess that you trust Him. Maybe it's a season you would not have chosen. You don't have to live long to go through some of those. But trust that you are where you are by the will of God. And allow Him to give you the security and the significance that comes with that. Where you are right now and what you're doing matters. It is by the will of God. 
I leave you this morning with this quote from Sam Storms. God values who we are and what we do because it is the fruit of his will working and orchestrating all things for the glory and praise of his grace in Christ Jesus. My hope and my prayer for us, my call to the Holy Spirit this morning is that you and I will begin to have light break into some of our dark places by realizing that where we are, who we are, and what we're doing right now, we are and we're doing by the will of God. Trust Him. Trust Him. Let's stand. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. Thank you.